Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Since the end of World War II, the United States has sought to strengthen the military forces in fragile states to help those countries improve their internal security situations and better govern their territory. But America's track record in this is decidedly mixed, according to my guest today. Mara Carlin is a non-resident senior fellow in the Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence here at Brookings and also an associate professor at Johns Hopkins SICE. She has served in national security roles for five U.S. Secretaries of Defense, and most recently served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development. Carlin is also the author of the new book, Building Militaries in Fragile States, from the University of Pennsylvania Press, which we'll discuss on the show today. Stay tuned in this episode for another Coffee Break segment where you'll meet a scholar who is studying the U.S. institutions that monitor the use of war powers and force overseas. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. Mara, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So you're pretty new to Brookings in terms of being a non-resident senior fellow, so I wanted to chat with you a little bit about your background. First, you were the, as I said, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development. What does that person do? What does that mean in English? (laughs) It's an unwieldy title indeed. It's a pretty extraordinary opportunity. So the role of that job is to try to figure out what the Defense Department's broad strategy and priorities should be. And then based on that strategy and priorities, figure out how to spend a budget of about $650 billion or so dollars trying to consider what future wars the U.S. military might be asked to play a role in and trying to ascertain how today we could make sure that military is as ready as possible for whatever that future brings. I also noted on your bio on our website that you were a professor in the semester at sea last year. Can you tell me what that was about? Yes. So when I was in college a long time ago, I did a study abroad program called Semester at Sea, where you sail around the world with about 600 other college students. Simply put, it changed my life. It exposed me to things I never could have imagined. It's where I particularly got the bug for international relations more broadly. And I always dreamed about going back as a professor. And I had the opportunity to do so right after I left the Obama administration. So from about January to May uh, 2017, I, along with about 20 or so other faculty members and 600 college students, sailed from San Diego across Asia and Africa and a bit of Europe all the way to Germany. That is fascinating. And it's similar somewhat to the story I had when I was in high school. I had a chance to visit the Soviet Union. And I went on a high school trip for two weeks, and that changed my life. And I decided I wanted to go to college to study Russian and international relations, and and now I'm a podcast host. Mm -hmm. So it all worked out. It's amazing when you sort of see your world exploded open. I brought my kids with me this time who are seven and nine, and just watching them learn about what the world looks like beyond their Washington, D.C. bubble was extraordinary. Cool. Let's talk about your book. Building Militaries in Fragile States. I first want to ask, how did you come across this topic? How did you get interested in the topic that you research in this book? So I became interested in this topic because it was something I had been doing. In my first stint at the Pentagon during the Bush administration, where I worked as a civil servant covering issues like the Middle East and South Asia, I spent a lot of time trying to build militaries in fragile states, from Pakistan's military to the Lebanese military, a whole bunch in between, everyone that I worked with was similarly trying to do so. So I was really curious then to figure out 
well, seems like this is the hot thing. We're spending a ton of time doing it. When else has the United States tried to do it? And in particular, under what circumstances has it been more or less successful? Definitionally speaking, what does it mean for the U.S. to build partner militaries? So effectively, when you have fragile states, so states that can't really exert a monopoly on violence, you want to find a way to secure them, particularly if in a sort of post-1945 environment or a post-September 11, 2001 environment, this fragility increasingly affects the United States. But to be frank, the United States doesn't necessarily want to wholly deal with it itself, right? It doesn't want to send the U.S. military to try to fix the problem for all sorts of reasons. So it chooses to delegate authority. That's kind of the way in which it's attempting to stabilize fragile states cheaply in blood, in treasure, and in time. You write in a recent article on foreign affairs about this topic that Washington is working with the militaries of more than 100 countries and running large programs to train and equip armed forces in such hotspots as Afghanistan, Iraq, Jordan, and Pakistan. But all 100 of those aren't examples of building militaries in fragile states. So it's a more specific type of U.S. involvement, right? Mm-hmm. Where I really try to focus on is smaller states. So I don't look at Pakistan, for example. I also don't look at places where you've seen a massive occupation. So, for example, Iraq and Afghanistan weren't examples that I tried to focus on because my view is once you, for better or worse, have occupied a country, and I would use a similar parallel here to, say, British colonies or French colonies, I think once an outside force plays that role, it's just a market different situation. So some of the findings I think are translatable, but I try not to get too deep into those for that reason. So you have four case studies in the book. Can you just provide a real quick overview of those four case studies? Sure. So in trying to examine when, why, and under what circumstances the U.S. military has been more successful in building militaries in fragile states, I tried to take a spectrum of examples since 1945. And effectively, I have those along a continuum of success and failure. Failure, for example, is the U.S. effort to build the South Vietnamese military in the 1950s. And what's so interesting on this one is you have the U.S. spending about half a decade focused on building South Vietnam's military. This is massive. It's half a billion in assistance, and it doesn't work. You have a South Vietnamese president who organizes the South Vietnamese military totally according to his preferences. He focuses on conventional external conflict, meaning that his country's not ready for a growing communist insurgency at home. You have a military whose leadership remains weak, its chain of command is confusing, just really a total mess. And because it doesn't work, you end up seeing this really substantial U.S. effort, this effort that ends up costing the lives of 58,000 Americans, to say nothing of a whole lot of Vietnamese. And so that is the sort of spectacular failure. And can we stick on that for a few minutes? I think of all the conflicts that you detail in the book, and of many conflicts, I'm probably the most familiar with Vietnam, just in my personal reading. But I do think it's so fascinating, and people may not totally understand the level of involvement that we had after the French basically were leaving in the mid-'50s and even until 1960, 61, before Kennedy's increased involvement. You're really just focused on that one period, and you write, fascinatingly and sadly, by summer 1960, an entire decade of American military assistance had failed to extend internal defense throughout South Vietnam. And then, as you said, you know, the 1960s and all that violence followed. But you made an important point just now. You said that President Diem of South Vietnam was focused on external conflict, but one of your theses is that the success in building militaries in fragile states 
helps them focus on internal conflicts. Why is that distinction there? Absolutely. So at the end of the day, the way we think about statehood, I think in a very definitional term, if you look at like Max Weber, you're looking at a country that has a monopoly on violence throughout its territory. And we no longer really have this issue of states dying, like you might have seen, say, 100 years or so ago. So there's kind of a panoply of fragile states that can extend this monopoly on violence. And if they can't do that, the notion of them, therefore, focusing on an external actor really is problematic, right? There's a little bit of you have to do the first things first and then second things second. And what happens with Diem is he's obsessed with the external threat environment. And unfortunately, the fellow that the United States puts in charge of its military assistance program in South Vietnam also is obsessed. So while you have the community in Washington generally agreeing that you had to kind of solidify internal defense throughout South Vietnam, you have both a political leadership in Saigon that doesn't believe this, doesn't want to follow it, who's getting advised by a U.S. military general officer to do whatever he wants, really contrary to what Washington had desired. And I should note, the fellow who's advising him on the U.S. side is just one heck of a character, as I think you probably saw. This is Sam Williams, known as Hanging Sam, who it's pretty clear before he even takes this job is utterly incompetent. He clashed with the U.S. embassy officials in Saigon. I mean, when you read the archives about how he talked to the U.S. ambassador, you almost just want to close your eyes. Mm -hmm. You see him kowtowing to President Diem. And as I noted, he's committed to doing what he wants in building the South Vietnamese military under the view that because he's the guy on the ground, he gets exactly what's going on, totally lacking this broader strategic perspective. And as you say in the book, it's not just a military issue. It's a very political issue. And so if he's messing up the whole political side of it, it seems like it's doomed to fail, right? Absolutely. You know, and that's what's so interesting and really, for me, was striking as I was researching and writing this book was just how much these efforts to train and equip partner militaries are really political, not technical exercises, And I think this is not surprising to those who look at state-building literature or to those in the development space, but in the national security literature, in the strategic studies literature in particular, and for any of us who've been practitioners, I think we have largely approached it in a technical manner. How many Humvees do they have? How much ammunition do they need? And have largely distanced from key political issues. And it seems to me after having written this book that that's actually a pretty flawed approach. Let's switch now to one of the case studies that is a success, which is Greece. Can you talk about what happened in Greece and when and some of the factors involved? So Greece, just after World War II, is a mess. I mean, it's really just extraordinary to read about it. This is after this German occupation ended. You have a totally destroyed infrastructure, a ravaged landscape, and rampant starvation and disease. It's in such bad shape that Secretary of State Dean Acheson looks back and he says— Greece was in the position of a semi-conscious patient on the critical list whose relatives and physicians have been discussing whether his life could be saved. So when I picture it, having read so much about Greece during that period, I mean, I'm really picturing what we see in, like, Syria, for example, just wanton destruction and violence. And 
the U.S. approach, once Washington makes this decision to build the Greek military, is extremely, extremely deep. I was shocked when I was going through the archives to see things like the State Department literally writing the Greek request for aid to make sure it said what Washington wanted it to say. Throughout the process, to see just how deeply this U.S. effort to build the Greek military involved reorganizing the entire thing to ensure it was focused on internal defense, to deeply influence the personnel, so pushing capable leaders forward. Really, the United States oversaw a complete overhaul of Greek military personnel, appointing a new chief of staff, compelling all of the Greek military's lieutenant generals except one to resign, facilitating a number of promotions, encouraging the removal of division and corps commanders who didn't appear to be up to snuff. It was extraordinary to see what was happening on the ground, but then also to see what was happening in Washington, where you saw a pretty smooth process of constant reassessment, trying to figure out what are we trying to do here? What's really the purpose of our effort? Under what circumstances should whatever we're doing expand? So I refer to this as this notion of becoming a co-combatant. You have these senior national security officials in Washington regularly coming together to figure out under what circumstances things in Greece have changed enough that the U.S. military role might need to actually meaningfully evolve. And when I read that, I can't help but think about things like Syria today, where you have 2,000 U.S. military personnel with an extremely confused mandate. And another example in the book, if you look at Lebanon in the early 1980s, where you have the Marines who are out there also with a confused mandate. And, you know, as I put it, if it's confusing to people who look at it, say, back in America, it's going to also be confusing to our adversaries. And the Lebanon example is unfortunately a pretty spot-on one, where you see an attack on the U.S. Embassy Mm -hmm. in 83. You see an attack on the Marine barracks later in 1983, too. Much of that, I think, because the U.S. keeps saying we're there only for defensive reasons. Reagan even writes that into his journal the night that he authorizes the USS New Jersey to start firing on militias and Syrian military forces in Lebanon. He's saying this still falls under the heading of defense. But you can see that other actors don't buy it. Now, you make a point throughout the book that the United States and Washington very much wants to avoid being a co-combatant. And it sounds like they definitely achieved that in Greece up until the 60s. I think they achieved that in Vietnam. Uh, but did they achieve that in Lebanon? No, I don't think so at all. I think Washington's view was that the Marines in Lebanon were not supposed to be combatants. What's so interesting is within a year of their presence, they're actually getting combat pay. And yet the vision is, is they're there merely to be a presence. They're merely there for stability. So I very much see that example as a slippery slope. And I think, therefore, it shouldn't be surprising that you start to see these attacks on the forces. And now, coffee break. My name is Scott Anderson. I'm the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies here at the Brookings Institution. In addition to my role here at Brookings, I'm a senior editor at Lawfare. And so I spent a lot of time with them ensuring that we have quality coverage of major developments in national security law area and national security policy. I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river from us here in our nation's capital. 
Growing up in the D.C. area, I was inspired to become a scholar by the fact that so many world events and national events were happening so proximate to me. A lot of the professors and parents and people I knew growing up were involved with policy issues that were very important, impacting a lot of people's lives on the newspapers. So I knew from a fairly early age that I wanted to be a participant in a lot of the important policy discussions happening in our country. Among the many very important policy issues we're facing today, one of the most important, certainly, is the manner in which we're pursuing and expanding our use of force overseas. The war on terrorism has led to U.S. activities in a number of forums and a number of different types of activities at a scale and a volume that very few people would have anticipated 10 or 15 years ago. A lot of them are very reasonable. A lot of them respond to very real threats, and there's a good reasons policymakers want to pursue them. But the framework that we have, the legal framework, the institutional framework for ensuring democratic accountability and public accountability for a lot of those actions hasn't kept up with a lot of those changes. And I think finding ways to ensure that as we engage in these new types of conflict, we still stay true to our democratic principles and the other principles of law that we have in our country should be a major priority for many of our lawmakers and policymakers. Well, in addition to spending a fair amount of time covering and responding to some major developments in the Middle East, I spend a good amount of my time here at Brookings working on, or at least starting currently, a new project looking at the institutions that we have to monitor the use of war powers and the use of force overseas. The War Powers Resolution that was enacted in 1973 has certain reporting requirements. The use of those has evolved over presidential administrations over the last several decades. But a lot of the actual requirements and the practices that have evolved from them don't track ways that we use force currently. And Congress has authorized a wide range of related activities, types of security assistance and other sorts of security cooperation that don't clearly fit in that framework, but obviously have a huge impact on how we prosecute our national security policy overseas. So I'm trying to develop new frameworks and proposals about ways we may be able to reform those systems to ensure that we have better accountability and oversight. If there were two books that I could recommend to listeners, the first one would be a book called Moral Man and Immoral Society by Reinhold Niebuhr. It was a book that was assigned or at least recommended to me by a professor in my first week of college of my International Relations 101 class, and it has influenced the way I think about a lot of things. The author, Reinhold Niebuhr, was a theologian but also a political activist and a deep thinker about both domestic politics and international politics, and in it, he really wrestles with how one can both embrace ethics but understand some of the sometimes unethical seeming or unethical things that emerge from human institutions and systems of government and tries to find a way to craft policy that navigates between those two poles and does so in a way informed not just as a scholar but also as a practitioner and activist. The second book I would recommend is actually technically a lecture, I believe, Max Weber's Science as a Vocation. It's his less read lecture after politics as a vocation, but it's really showing him wrestling with what the advent of the era of rationality can mean for spirituality and personal belief, as well as including political belief and political ideology. And he paints a picture of the limits of rationality in our day-to-day lives and addressing some of the major questions that we face as human beings that I think really speaks to a lot of the social trends that we've seen over the 20th and 21st century. And it's something that I find myself thinking about almost every day when I read the newspaper. Another really important 
factor that you look at throughout the case studies is the presence or the role of external actors in the countries. And it was fascinating to learn that in Greece, for example, while the U.S. was trying to stand up and rebuild the Greek military, it was faced with an insurgency that was supported by outside countries, I think Yugoslavia, maybe Bulgaria, there were some others. So talk about the, um, the effect or the importance of considering what the external actors are doing as the U.S. military is working on this problem. This is not just a bilateral effort. And I think sometimes it's a little too easy for us to focus on the U.S. role and the partner military's role. But antagonistic external actors, the nature of their support to an insurgency, whether it's providing materiel, whether it's offering sanctuary, or just broadly trying to undermine a state's ability is really important also to focus on. You know, there are antagonistic external actors for whom it is not in their interest for a stable country to actually be established. They may have a fundamentally vision of what that state's future should look like for all sorts of reasons. And so in writing this book, I found it was really important to ensure that U.S. policymakers were thinking through what role external actors were playing, at a minimum acknowledging and paying attention to it, and at a maximum actually starting to take some sort of response toward it. So if you look at Lebanon in the early 80s, you see the Israelis, the Syrians, the Iranians all undercutting U.S. efforts to build the Lebanese military at various moments. And there are all sorts of reasons why they're doing it in their own interest. It's important to be cognizant of that. Now, Washington may want to take some steps to respond to external actors. I mean, you could see this in terms of sanctions. You could see this in terms of naming and shaming, for example, which I think is one thing we've seen in Syria, for example, where there's been an effort to kind of name and shame Hezbollah and Iran for supporting the rotten regime in Syria. And this could scale up all the way into using force. Of course, that all depends on priorities for Washington. So if we use Syria as an example again today, it may be that Washington decides that its priorities vis-a-vis Moscow are a lot bigger and more important than its bad behavior in Syria. So speaking of Lebanon in the 1980s, you just mentioned Israel was there, Syria was there, Iran was there. There was a civil war there. Why did the United States get so involved in Lebanon in the early 1980s? Trying to disentangle what is going on in Lebanon in the 1980s is actually something I started learning in 1999, and I'm not sure I can even tell you at this stage what was going on. It's amazing. There's this great declassified cable by Phil Habib, who had been the U.S. envoy to Lebanon during this period. And he says something in the cable like, you know, while I'm writing this cable, there's all sorts of artillery fire and rocket fire that I'm listening to. It could be any one of the 80-odd groups that are kind of wandering around this place. And I think you can't read that but feel kind of profound empathy for the folks who are trying to actually figure out what is going on at that moment. I think for Washington, the biggest motivation is the Israeli invasion. So there is a view, at least, that the then Secretary of State Al Haig had turned a blind eye to Israeli warnings that it would invade. And the invasion does occur. But importantly, you also see this massacre at Sabra and Shatila that's pulled together by these Christian militia that is affiliated with Israel. And this massacre at Sabra and Shatila occurs 
as the Marines are literally sailing away from Beirut shores. And when you go through the archives, you see there is this profound guilt that animates a number of senior officials as this happens. And so they decide effectively, turn the ships around, send the Marines back. And I think that really played into it. There is also this vision among various folks in Washington that you could find a way to split apart Syria and Lebanon and bring some sort of Lebanese-Israel rapprochement. In fact, there's this peace deal, and I use that sort of in quotes, that the U.S. pressures Lebanon to sign with the Israelis in about 1983 or so, and it's effectively dead on arrival. I mean, there's no real support for it. So you have Greece in the 1940s, Vietnam in the 1950s, Lebanon in the early 80s, but then your fourth case study is again Lebanon in the Mm mid-2000s. What did you learn about the U.S. involvement in building Lebanon's military in that period? And also talk about what you learned when comparing the two case studies just of Lebanon. So this was a really interesting one to research because biases up front, I worked on this one. And I had certain views of it, and it's one of sort of the great and terrible things of doing good research. Sometimes your answers don't turn out exactly as you want them to. The U.S. gets involved in Lebanon in the mid-aughts after the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri. There's then this massive uprising encouraging the Syrians to stop their three-decade-plus occupation of Lebanon. The Syrians get pushed out, and there's this effort in Washington to try to rebuild Lebanon, focus specifically on its military, a military that is generally at this stage pretty cross-confessional, a military that, while hasn't actually fought a whole lot, has a lot of support throughout Lebanon and among the Lebanese people. And in particular, this is after President Bush has talked a lot about his freedom agenda. Lebanon, for all sorts of reasons, is kind of seen as a place ripe for this. So it's a really interesting moment in which Washington really wants to try to strengthen the Lebanese military in the hopes that it can exert sovereignty throughout its territory. Obviously, Hezbollah, especially in a post-9-11 environment, and its bad behavior factored into this too. So this effort begins, and it is in many ways supposed to be a case study for how quick and how effective the U.S. effort to build militaries can be. It has support at the highest levels in Washington. You have extremely capable individuals in Beirut, which I think is some of the research into the 1980s case shows is not necessarily the case. During that one, you have one U.S. official who tries to get the head of the Lebanese military to start a slush fund, wants to give him a slush fund for weapons, another who tries to convince him to conduct a coup after he's out of power. So all sorts of not great things happening there. And so building the Lebanese military kind of 2005, 2006 onward is supposed to be a real success story. And a couple of things come out of it. First of all, it turns out even under the very best case scenario, U.S. programs to deliver aid are just really, really slow. You know, the U.S. system, of course, is one designed to constrain action, and this manifests even with all sorts of special congressional authorities. I think one of the more upsetting parts in doing the research was when I was conducting a bunch of interviews with Lebanese military and political officials. And I had been very aware of this massive U.S. effort to supply the Lebanese military in the summer 2007. It's an effort I had worked on, and it's really this extraordinary effort to try to deliver tons and tons of assistance. You have 40 C-130s and C-17s filled with materiel. 
The Lebanese military is fighting against this group, Fatal Islam, an al-Qaeda affiliate, of course. And the optics are just extraordinary. You have a Sunni prime minister in Fuad Senora who's working with a cross-confessional Lebanese military to fight all sorts of bad guys in this Palestinian refugee camp, bad guys who are affiliated with other bad guys who don't really like the United States. So you see this extraordinary effort where U.S. assistance is coming plane load by plane load. It is then getting put onto helicopters that are flying because of U.S. spare parts and in therefore landing not long after in a refugee camp where this battle is being waged. And to me, it really stood out. And I can't tell you how disheartening it was when I started doing my field research and talking to various folks in Lebanese political and military leadership to hear their responses of what happened. When they said things like, well, we didn't really get anything from the Americans but promises, best wishes, some ammunition, that was soul-crushing. One of them said, it's as though the Americans are telling us die first and assistance will follow. Similarly soul-crushing. Perhaps the worst was Lebanese television mocking U.S. aid and showing U.S. government officials literally handing out socks and toy airplanes to Lebanese generals. So what was supposed to be this extraordinary put-on-a-pedestal case definitely was not seen as such by those in country. So they were not engaged in the deep involvement with, as you said earlier, the personnel affairs of the army like they were in Greece and some other very specific issues to do with helping that country run its military. Absolutely. It was much more focused on getting the training and getting the equipment, which can be useful. I don't want to completely argue that that's not helpful. It's just that that sort of limited involvement with a partner military will invariably have a limited effect. And you might be okay with having a limited effect and limited security sector reform. It can be useful for a couple different reasons, but it will never transform a partner military. And I think it's important to be clear-eyed about that. Like another fascinating issue that courses throughout your research and throughout the whole case of U.S. involvement in other countries' militaries is when the U.S. military is involved in that kind of deep way, how does it avoid becoming a co-combatant like it did in Vietnam in the 1960s? I mean, what are the fire breaks? And mm-hmm. who says, okay, we can't do this anymore because it's getting too hot? I think a lot of that comes from this continuous reassessment, from writing down clearly in interagency documents here's why we are working with this military. Here are our expectations. Here are the indicators and warnings that we need to watch for. And then coming back to that, say, every few months or so, depending on the nature of that conflict, ensuring that the diagnosis of the situation on the ground is clear in Washington and that the prescription meets it. There are times where the U.S. may decide it needs to become a co-combatant, but that's not a decision it should just sort of slip into. And one high-level question has to do with, do partner militaries ever start to become dependent on USAID? And to the degree that they might just say, we don't really have to try that hard because the U.S. is just going to keep throwing Humvees and bullets at us, and we don't need to really worry about reforming our own internal structures. Oh, absolutely. It's important to recognize when those circumstances are the case. I mean, I think you could argue Pakistan is probably one of those. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with recent decisions to try to withhold some assistance from the Pakistani military by the Trump administration. But to date, I think the Pakistanis pretty rightly figured out that the United States was generally going to give them assistance no matter what, without probably as many checks and balances as would have been pretty useful. So, Mara, you write in the conclusion of your book that, quote, we're doing it wrong. I'll emphasize this is the present tense. 
So where are we doing it wrong, and where do we absolutely need to be getting this right, if not everywhere? I think one of the cases that I find really interesting at this moment is Iraq. Effectively, the U.S. has been working with Iraq's military now for, what, a good decade and a half or so. And what we saw only a couple years ago was a military that dropped all its weapons and fled when ISIS rose up. And I think, you know, you saw mass amounts of equipment being lost, and I think we keep getting more and more updates of how that's happened. ISIS Um, took those weapons. uh, ISIS took weapons, and they've done pretty decently with them. And so that was quite clearly not a success. And what's been particularly interesting to me, I was in Iraq a couple months ago, and what was interesting is to see, you know, there's this massive effort to try to counter ISIS militarily. And the Iraqi military played a role. Notably, the counterterrorism services played the best role of any part of the Iraqi military. This is kind of cream of the crop, hand-picked, really falling in line with this notion of your people matter. But outside of the Iraqi military, it was a whole bunch of militias that are actually responsible for much of this victory, kind of this military victory over ISIS. So to me, it's important to acknowledge that what we were doing before wasn't working, that there were real costs to it not working. And now the U.S. has got to figure out the extent to which it wants to support a broad swath of the Iraqi military, maybe bringing in various militias, et cetera, or just focus on certain elite forces. So I'll be really curious to see the extent to which that happens. And obviously not doing so will have some real costs, as we saw just a couple of years ago with ISIS. Well, let me ask in conclusion, Mara, you to talk about some of the research you're doing now at Brookings. What are you doing now and in the future? So I just wrapped up some work on Syria. I was testifying last week on the situation in Syria, trying to think through the way forward. And as I briefly noted before, the thing that worries me the most right now on that front is figuring out what the U.S. military's mission and rules of engagement are there. More broadly, I'd like to start a project that I've sort of been cogitating on now for a bit, which is thinking through what the United States has inherited from the last 15, 16 years of war. This is the longest period of time America has ever been in active conflict. Never have we seen so few serve for so long. There's an amazing book about this by Secretary of Defense Mattis when he was out at Stanford and the scholar Corey Shockey. And it really details, you know, what's been happening in terms of who's serving, their relationship with the public, a real mill gap, which I think we've seen only grow stronger in recent years. So kind of thinking through what have we inherited biases, processes, structures from all of this, and how do we make sure that there is an effort to acknowledge it so we can move on? Well, in some sense, I guess we hope that uh, the military inherits the lessons that you document in your book about Greece, because that sounds like a success story. So I definitely hope that they are reading your book over in the Pentagon. I hope so, too. Well, Mara, I want to thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise with me today. Thank you so much for having me. You can learn more about Mara Carlin and her research, and especially her wonderful new book, Building Militaries in Fragile States, on our website, brookings.edu. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. 
to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Thanks also to our intern, Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.